This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. It's an old adage that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. While we might all have various ideas of who and what we consider attractive, the beauty industry has spent billions of dollars promoting the idealized version of beauty to the public. Those who meet these standards and are considered the most beautiful sometimes capitalize on this by hiring themselves out as models. Their photographs are used in glossy ads and in television commercials to promote products and services to consumers. Some join the modeling industry to seek out excitement, adventure, and if they're very lucky, financial reward. But many who strive for success in the fashion and beauty industry don't consider the dark side that may be lurking beyond the shutter clicks and bright lights. In this series, Picture Perfect Murder, I'll share cases where models find themselves faced with the ugly side of the beauty game. In this first episode, a man poses as a photographer to lure beautiful young women with the promise of modeling work. Those who take him up on his offer, and even those that don't, find themselves victims of a serial rapist who soon graduates to serial murder. This is the case of serial killer Christopher Wilder, the beauty queen killer. Christopher Wilder almost died at birth. By the time his life ended in violence just 39 years later, many people wished he had. That may seem harsh to say, but once you learn how much pain and havoc he unleashed upon the earth during his short lifespan, you may share the same sentiment. Christopher Bernard Wilder was born on March 13, 1945 in Sydney, Australia. His father was an American naval officer and his mother was Australian. By all accounts, he grew up in a normal, loving family, and Christopher had a typical early life. There were two children born to the Wilders. Their other son, Stephen, did not share his brother's criminal tendencies and would later work with police to try and bring Christopher to justice. So we gather little in the way of clues from his early life to understand what turned Christopher into the monster he became. We could perhaps point to the health challenges he faced in his formative years. Were these traumatic enough to somehow affect his lack of impulse control and violent behavior later in life? Wilder was indeed so frail at birth, he was not expected to live more than a few hours, and was even administered last rites by a clergyman. The infant recovered, but remained sickly throughout his infancy and toddler years. At age two, Wilder had a mishap in a swimming pool and nearly drowned. A year later, something caused him to suffer a convulsion. The episode was so severe, he stopped breathing and had to be resuscitated. So it's possible that brain trauma either at birth or in his first years contributed to his propensity for violence as he reached adulthood. However, this is merely speculation. It does not appear that Wilder was examined by a neurologist at that time, and no diagnosis of a brain injury was ever recorded in his medical history. We'll move on from speculation to what we do know about Christopher Bernard Wilder. In his early adolescence, he had already become a neighborhood peeping Tom, peering through windows at girls and women and masturbating. 
No formal charges were made about these incidents, so perhaps this was not discovered at the time. It's also possible that if someone had caught him and threatened him with arrest, his parents may have smoothed things over with the complainant. We'll learn from other details in this story that Wilder's parents saved their son more than once by bailing him out of one scrape or another. The court system as well contributed to Wilder's ability to avoid consequences for his actions. As a result, his propensity for violence went unchecked for the most part, and his behavior escalated. The first crime on record for Christopher Wilder dates to January of 1963, when he was just 17 years old. Along with two other men, Wilder was involved in the gang rape of a 13-year-old girl. He pled guilty to unlawful carnal knowledge, but was given no jail time. Instead, he was sentenced to probation for one year and ordered to participate in mandatory therapy and electroshock treatments. Commonly referred to as electroshock therapy, electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT, is a psychiatric treatment where mild electrical currents are administered by placing electrodes on top of the head to induce a generalized seizure. This type of therapy was believed to be effective in treating severe depression, mania, and catatonia. There was some controversy surrounding this intervention, as you might imagine. Some would later speculate that the ECT sessions young Christopher Wilder was subjected to resulted in, or at least exacerbated, his violent tendencies. However, there is no conclusive evidence that ECT causes the type of brain damage that is associated with an increase in violent behavior. The most adverse side effects of ECT are said to be similar to those experienced after brief general anesthesia temporary confusion, and transient memory loss. However, it's unclear why Wilder was ordered to undergo ECT, nor do we know how it was administered or what, if any, results it had on whatever condition it was supposed to alleviate in him. The stories later told about Wilder being adversely affected by ECT to the point that it caused him to act out violently are merely conjecture. In 1968, now age 23, Wilder married but the union lasted less than two weeks. His bride found a briefcase containing photos of nude women and a pair of women's underwear. She used this excuse as a way to get out of the marriage, one in which she reported being sexually assaulted by her new husband. When she refused to comply willingly with his forced advances, he threatened to kill her, she later admitted. The woman, whose name shall remain anonymous, was granted a divorce and never looked back. In 1969, Wilder was once again charged with a sexual crime. A student nurse reported him to the police, saying he had tried to blackmail her into sex by threatening to release nude photos of her. He was allowed to plead guilty to disturbing the peace and paid a fine. Two patterns begin to emerge already in the Christopher Wilder story. The first is that he was repeatedly let off escalating sexual offenses with a mere slap on the wrist by the justice system. The second is Wilder portraying himself as a photographer to lure and manipulate women into complying with his sexual advances. But even though Wilder got off lightly on the charges he had faced in Australia, he nevertheless decided it might be a good idea to hit the road. He emigrated to the United States, settling in Boynton Beach, Florida, in 1969. He arrived with some money and put it to good use by investing in the building boom happening in South Florida at that time. Wilder purchased six parcels of land in Palm Beach County, which were worth more than $400,000, even before he began building high-end homes on the property. His investments in construction and real estate allowed him to build a mansion for himself, purchase a speedboat, luxury cars, 
and even a Porsche 911 that he raced in the Miami Grand Prix, coming in at 17th place. Wilder also spent some of his money on high-end cameras and continued to pursue his interest in photography. But as you may have guessed, this wasn't an artistic pursuit as much as it was a convenient way for Wilder to prey on women. Two years after Christopher Wilder first set foot in Florida, he was arrested once again for a sexually based offense. He approached two young women in Pompano Beach and attempted to force them into posing for nude photos. He was once again let off lightly. He pled guilty to disturbing the peace and was merely ordered to pay a fine once again. Wilder was now running a successful construction company with a partner and had plenty of money with which to wine and dine pretty women. He preferred to date models, and like Ted Bundy, Wilder had a type, tall, leggy brunettes with dark eyes. Wilder appeared to lie low for a while after his initial arrest in Florida. At the same time, he was busy building his business, trying to become a race car driver, and putting forward a facade of normalcy. But by 1977, he was caught once again. This time, he'd lured a high school girl to one of his construction sites, where he tried to coerce her into performing oral sex. She got away and turned him into the police. A psychiatric evaluation was ordered for Wilder as he awaited trial. He admitted the attack on the teenager to his court-appointed psychiatrist, but the information he shared was considered confidential, and the details weren't allowed to be entered into evidence. The psychiatrist submitted his report to the judge, in which he determined that Wilder was, quote, not safe in an unstructured environment. He recommended Wilder receive supervised treatment. Wilder's attorney attempted to negotiate a plea bargain, but the judge rejected the deal. The case finally went to trial, but Wilder was acquitted by a jury. Perhaps skating out of his most serious offense to date emboldened him because just two short years later, Wilder, now posing as a photographer and calling himself David Pierce, began luring women with promises of modeling work. If he succeeded in getting them alone, he kidnapped and sexually assaulted them. On April 13, 1980, 35-year-old Wilder attempted to abduct a 17-year-old. She escaped from his car and described Wilder and his vehicle to the police. Two months later, in late June, using the same ruse, Wilder lured a teenager into his car with the promise of a modeling job. He drove her to a rural area and raped her. The girl helped the police catch him by memorizing Wilder's car's license plate number. Wilder's attorney was successful in pleading down the charge to attempted sexual battery. Instead of serving a lengthy prison sentence for rape, Wilder received five years of probation and mandatory therapy. Infuriating. It was during the last round of court-appointed counseling that Wilder claimed that he, quote, suffered from blackouts during the weekends. Although he was still on probation, Wilder was allowed to leave the country. In 1982, he returned to Australia to visit his parents over Christmas. Neither time with his family nor the holidays dampened Wilder's urge to prey on women. On December 28th, he approached two teenagers at a mall in New South Wales. He claimed he was scouting models for a fashion magazine. The girls fell for this deception and agreed to get into his car to be taken to a photography studio. Wilder drove the girls to a remote location where he bound them with rope and threatened to kill them if they didn't comply. He forced them to pose for lewd photos and then masturbated over them. 
Afterward, he let them go. They reported him to the police, and Wilder was traced through information the girls provided about his rented vehicle. He was arrested the next day. This time, Wilder was charged with kidnapping and indecent assault. His parents posted $350,000 bail to spring their son from jail. Incredibly, he was allowed to leave the country and return to the U.S. until his case went to trial. Originally sent for May 7, 1983, legal delays kept pushing the date out until April 1984. By that time, Christopher Wilder would be on the run from the police in the United States after weeks of crisscrossing the country, committing kidnapping, rape, and murder. And his days were numbered. In 1980, Christopher Wilder began preying on girls and young women in earnest. He'd been arrested several times for kidnapping and sexually assaulting women in the years leading up to 1980, but was let go each time, receiving little or no jail time. Rather than scaring Wilder straight, being let off so lightly seemed to embolden him to ever more violent actions. Unfortunately, Wilder did learn one lesson from his former arrests. He learned he'd be better off leaving no witnesses. Wilder was known as a bit of a playboy in South Florida. He was single, had money, lived in a mansion, and drove a race car competitively. At some of these races, he met pretty young women who were hired as models to be photographed with the race cars or to promote sponsors' products. One of these young models was 20-year-old Rosario Teresa Gonzalez. Rosario, originally from Cuba, moved to the U.S. with her family when she was just 10 years old. As she grew up, family members and friends remarked on her beauty. Rosario had wavy brunette hair, a deeply dimpled smile, and big brown eyes. She began competing in beauty pageants and was a participant in the Miss Florida contest. Rosario was offered local modeling jobs and hoped to spin these opportunities into a lucrative career in fashion modeling. But she also dreamed of having a home and family of her own someday. In 1983, it seemed that all her dreams were coming true. She had landed a few modeling assignments and she fell in love and got engaged that summer. Then she met Christopher Wilder. Rosario was working as a model at the Miami Grand Prix racetrack where Wilder was racing his Porsche 911. On February 26, 1984, Rosario was last seen at the racetrack at around noon. Witnesses reported seeing her leave with a Caucasian man in his 30s. She was expected to return home by 6 p.m. that evening, but night fell with no sign of her. The next day, a missing persons report was filed and a search began, but only her car was located. Her 1980 blue Oldsmobile Cutlass was discovered in a parking lot 14 miles from the racetrack. Rosario Gonzalez had vanished. To this day, she has never been found. Over the next six and a half weeks, at least 11 girls and young women would fall victim to Christopher Wilder. His ruse was almost always the same. He'd first try and convince girls he was a fashion photographer who was scouting out fresh new talent for national magazines. He looked the part by dressing in well-made clothing and carrying a high-end camera. His favorite hunting grounds were shopping malls, where many young girls could easily be spotted and chatted up on any given day. Sometimes, though, Wilder had to make several attempts before a girl would give him the time of day. In some cases, he was successful, and his target was fooled into accompanying him to another location. 
Other times, the girl rejected his offer. In these instances, he would simply abduct the woman by force. As his crime spree escalated, Wilder became more impatient and increasingly out of control. He took more risks and became more violent, allowing almost no time to lapse between attacks. One week after Rosario Gonzalez disappeared, 23-year-old Elizabeth Kenyon also vanished. Elizabeth Kenyon had also met Christopher Wilder when she was dabbling in modeling work. Elizabeth, like Rosario, had also competed in beauty pageants, winning the Orange Bowl Princess title in 1982 and becoming a finalist in the Miss Florida contest where she'd competed against Rosario. But Elizabeth's true calling was working with children. After graduating from the University of Miami, she worked with special needs students as a teacher at Coral Gables High School. She also served as the school's cheerleading coach. Wilder introduced himself to Elizabeth as a successful entrepreneur and a freelance photographer. He'd asked her out and she'd accepted. They dated off and on for a short time, but Wilder wanted to get serious with the hazel-eyed brunette. He'd asked her to marry him, but she'd turned him down. At almost 16 years her senior, Elizabeth had decided that he was just too old for her. While they were dating, Elizabeth described Wilder to her parents as a real gentleman. She was impressed that he was different from the other men who approached her about modeling. Wilder, she said, was one of the few men who did not immediately express his desire to photograph her in the nude. On March 5, 1984, Elizabeth left work at 3 p.m. She spoke to the high school campus security guard briefly before driving away in her Chrysler convertible. She never arrived at the apartment she shared with a roommate on Ives Dairy Road. Nor had she contacted her parents, who lived in Pompano Beach, before disappearing. The next sighting of Elizabeth was three days later, when a gas station attendant claimed to see her drive up in the Chrysler. He reported seeing her talking to a man in a Cadillac Eldorado. The man paid for Elizabeth's tank of gas, and they both drove away. She was never seen again. When she failed to show up for work the next day, Elizabeth was reported missing. Six days after she was last seen, her car was found abandoned at the Miami International Airport. No one had heard her mention going out of town, and she had packed none of her belongings. Her name was not listed as a passenger on any flights leaving Miami that week. When it appeared that the police investigation into their daughter's disappearance had stalled, Elizabeth's parents hired a private investigator. The PI connected Christopher Wilder, Elizabeth's former boyfriend, to the description of the automobile and the man seen with her at the gas station. The investigator contacted Wilder and questioned him about the missing woman. The next day, Wilder left town, landing on Merritt Island, two hours north of his Boynton Beach home. Before leaving, Wilder told his business partner that he was headed out of town. Tearfully, he reportedly said to him, I'm not going to jail. I'm not going to do it. Now perhaps feeling he had nothing to lose, Wilder set out to prey on as many women as possible. Christopher Wilder fled South Florida trying to keep one step ahead of the law. Two women had disappeared in a number of days from the area, and Wilder was acquainted with them both. A private investigator had already sought him out to question him about the missing women, and Wilder was feeling the heat. Now he headed north to Merritt Island. The next girl would go missing from the Merritt Island Mall on March 19th, two days after Wilder hit town. Teresa Ferguson, who was called Terry, was 21 years old. A pretty brunette who stood 5 foot 7 inches tall and weighed just 117 pounds, 
Terry must have stood out to Wilder when he spotted her in the mall alone. After Terry vanished, witnesses placed a man at the mall approaching young women who fit Wilder's description. Four days later, Terry Ferguson's body was discovered in Canaveral Groves, an unincorporated area of Brevard County, Florida, just north of Merritt Island. Her body was fully clothed, but her shoes were missing. Ropes had been tied around her legs, wrist, and neck. She was also severely beaten. The day after Wilder abducted Terry Ferguson, he made his way to Tallahassee where he encountered 19-year-old Linda Grover, a Florida State University student. Linda was shopping in the Governor's Square Mall when Wilder approached her and offered her $25 an hour to pose for photos. He told her he was a photographer working for a national magazine and liked her look. She declined his offer. Undeterred, Wilder watched and waited until Linda left the mall. As she was walking to her car in the parking lot, Wilder came up from behind and grabbed her. He punched her in the stomach, knocking the wind out of her. He tied her hands and feet with a clothesline and threw her into his vehicle. Wilder then drove 40 miles north over the state line into Georgia. On the way there, Linda came to and began struggling in the back seat. Wilder pulled over and choked her until she passed out. He then threw her bound body into the trunk of the car. He continued driving until he reached the town of Bainbridge, where he booked a room at the Glen Oaks Motel. Wilder now planned to put his long-held fantasy into place. Like infamous killers Gacy and Dahmer, Wilder also fantasized about turning his victims into sex slaves. But Wilder would learn that people are not so easily controlled, even when they're beaten and threatened at gunpoint. The human survival instinct is strong, and when his victims understood what type of threat Wilder was, they fought like hell. Just a warning here. The following details of what Wilder subjected Linda Grover to once he got her to the motel room are really hard to listen to. You may want to skip forward about 60 seconds if you'd rather not hear them. I will let you know, though, that Linda does survive her ordeal. Wilder gagged and bound Linda and raped her repeatedly in the motel room, but he didn't stop there. He tied her feet with copper wires and passed an electrical current through them to shock her. Why he did this is unknown, although some would speculate that he was reenacting his own experience of being subjected to electroshock therapy as a youth. The simple truth was that Christopher Wilder got off on torturing his victims. We only know a few of the details from those who survived, like Linda. Wilder also shaved Linda's genitals and superglued her eyes closed. She fought him with every ounce of strength she had, so he was not able to completely shut one of her eyes. She could still see partially out of it, Linda was able to wrestle away from Wilder and run into the bathroom, locking the door behind her. She began pounding on the walls and screaming for help. Wilder panicked and ran from the motel room. Linda was rescued and described her attacker to the police. Wilder now fled over 600 miles west, arriving in Beaumont, Texas on March 21st. He continued to prey on women using his photographer scouting models ruse. Terry Diane Walden was a 23-year-old wife and mother and a nursing student at Lamar University when she crossed paths with Christopher Wilder. That evening, Terry told her husband that she had been approached by a man on campus who offered her modeling work. She had declined. Two days later, Terry told her husband she was going to the mall to pick up a few things. Afterward, she was going to study with a friend before picking her daughter up from daycare. Just after 5 p.m., her husband got a call from the daycare center saying that Terry never arrived. Alarmed, he immediately contacted the police to report his wife missing. 
Wilder was now not taking no for an answer from anyone. Terry had turned him down, but he watched and waited. When she arrived at the mall, Wilder approached her a second time asking her to model for him. She turned him down once more. Like with Linda Grover, Wilder followed Terry to the parking lot. He hit her over the head and locked her in the trunk of her car. He left his vehicle in the mall parking lot and transferred his plates to her car before driving off. Wilder was already on the police radar as a suspect in the two missing women in Florida. He also matched the description of the man who had abducted, raped, and tortured Linda Grover. When his car was found abandoned in the same town where Terry Walden had gone missing, it was impounded and searched. Evidence tying him to the murder of Teresa Ferguson was recovered from the vehicle. Wilder's name and mugshot were now broadcast to the public. He left Texas and crossed into Oklahoma. On March 25th, Wilder abducted 21-year-old Suzanne Logan from the Penn Square Mall in Oklahoma City. He drove her 180 miles north to Newton, Kansas, and checked into a room at the I-35 Inn. The next morning, he drove 90 miles northeast and dumped Suzanne's body into a reservoir near Manhattan, Kansas. She had been raped and tortured before being stabbed to death. Suzanne Logan was a newlywed who'd been married just nine months. The day after Suzanne was murdered, Terry Walden's body was found dumped in a Texas canal. She had rope burns around her body and duct tape was found around her wrists and ankles. She had been stabbed 38 times. Four days after abducting Suzanne Logan in Oklahoma City, Wilder turned up in Grand Junction, Colorado. Once again, he was witnessed approaching women in a mall and offering them modeling work. 18-year-old Cheryl Bonaventura may have left willingly with Wilder because they were seen together at a diner in Silverton where they mentioned heading for Las Vegas. Perhaps Wilder convincingly played the part of talent scout slash photographer and lulled the teen into trusting him until he decided to attack. Maybe that was part of the warped game he was playing. They were next seen together at the Four Corners Monument, a historic landmark that sits at the junction of the four states of Utah, Colorado, Arizona, and New Mexico. Wilder booked a room at the Page Boy Motel in Page, Arizona. Two days later, on March 31st, he shot and stabbed Cheryl and left her body in the Kanab River in Utah. It would not be found until May 3rd. Christopher Wilder had been crisscrossing the United States for just two weeks, but had already left several victims in his wake. Only one had survived. On April 1st, Wilder was in Las Vegas, where he met 17-year-old Michelle Lynn Korfman in the Meadows Mall. Michelle was an aspiring model who was at the mall that day to participate in a 17-magazine cover model competition. Wilder couldn't have organized a better situation in which to prey on impressionable young girls. He picked Michelle out of the crowd and approached her with an offer of modeling work. She was very interested in speaking to the nice older man who was carrying a large camera bag. He appeared to be a professional photographer, as he claimed. Wilder asked Michelle to meet him at Caesar's Palace. Her car was later found in that hotel casino's parking garage. Michelle vanished. By now, Wilder was on the radar of several police and sheriff's departments who were investigating missing and murdered women in their jurisdictions. Just days after he arrived in Las Vegas, Wilder was placed on the FBI's 10 most wanted list, linked to three murders, one kidnapping, 
and now four disappearances. Wilder's brother Stephen traveled to the United States to cooperate with the FBI in the search. An FBI spokesperson stated, We consider this to be the top fugitive investigation at this time. Unlimited resources are being poured into it. This is a truly massive manhunt stretching from coast to coast. The public was warned about Wilder's M.O., quote, In each known incident, an individual meeting Wilder's description approaches an attractive young female, identifies himself as a professional photographer, and offers the woman a photo session for usage in nationwide magazines. If any resistance or refusal is given, he forcibly abducts the victim, end quote. On April 4th, Wilder, now in Southern California, abducted a 16-year-old from the city of Torrance. He drove Tina Marie Risico to El Centro, California, located close to the Mexico border. Once there, he moved her around to various motels, raping her repeatedly. Two interesting facts about Wilder's crime spree emerge at this point in the story. First, although he knew he was now being sought by the FBI, instead of crossing the border into Mexico, he drove further north to New Mexico. Second, Wilder decided to keep his youngest victim alive. He took Tina Risico with him to Taos. Terrified, repeatedly assaulted, and raped by her captor at gunpoint, Tina would do anything to stay alive. Wilder took advantage of this and forced Tina to assist him in luring other female victims into his trap. Nearly a week after taking Tina captive, they arrived in Merrillville, Indiana, a suburb near the city of Gary. It was on April 10th when Wilder pointed out another 16-year-old to Tina and instructed her to strike up a conversation with the teen. Donette Wilt was lured into a parking lot of the South Lake Mall and taken by force. Wilder made Tina drive the car while he raped Donette in the back seat. They drove through the night, ending up in Rochester, New York, over 500 miles east. Wilder took Donette into the woods and attempted to kill her by suffocating her and then stabbing her. She survived the attack, and after Wilder left, made her way back to the road and flagged down a passing truck driver named Charlie Larson. He drove her to the hospital, where she underwent emergency surgery for damage inflicted by Wilder's knife. When she came out of anesthesia, she was able to give a description of Wilder and inform authorities that her attacker was headed for Canada. The next day, Wilder abducted 33-year-old Beth Dodge from Victor, New York. She was driving a Pontiac Trans Am Firebird, a flashy muscle-type car that became very popular after it was featured in the 1977 film Smokey and the Bandit. Why Wilder would choose to carjack someone with such a conspicuous vehicle is also curious, but that's what he did. He held out a gun on Beth Dodge while Tina drove the car. After a short distance, Wilder took Beth out of the vehicle and shot her near a gravel pit. He then drove Tina, who'd been held captive by him for nine days, to the Logan International Airport in Boston. He purchased a plane ticket for her to Los Angeles and let her go. Tina would later say she didn't believe Wilder was going to let her live until she was on the airplane. The whole time I was walking through the airport, Tina said, I was waiting for him to shoot me in the back. Wilder then headed north where he attempted to abduct another woman in Beverly, Massachusetts, but was unsuccessful. With the FBI hot on his trail after gathering more information from Tina Risico, Wilder was making a beeline for the Canadian border. An all-points bulletin was broadcast to law enforcement agencies north of Boston, telling them to be on the lookout for Christopher Bernard Wilder. Three days later, he pulled into a service station in Colebrook, New Hampshire, located just about 20 minutes south of Canada. He asked the clerk for directions to the border. 
two state troopers, Leo Jellison and Wayne Fortier, spotted the Trans Am parked in Vic Getty service station. They noted that it matched the description of the stolen vehicle driven by the fugitive. As Wilder walked out of the service station and towards the Trans Am, the troopers approached. Wilder ran towards the car and reached across the driver's seat, pulling out a Colt Python 357 Magnum handgun from under the passenger seat. Jellison grabbed Wilder from behind. Before he could turn around and aim the gun at the officers, two shots were fired from the weapon. The first bullet went through Wilder and out his back, hitting Jellison. The second bullet hit Wilder in the chest, and according to an autopsy, quote, exploded his heart. He died instantly, ending his seven-week reign of terror across the U.S. State Trooper Jellison was injured, but made a full recovery. Wilder's death was officially listed as a suicide, although whether he killed himself or the gun went off accidentally is a matter for debate. The bodies of some of his victims were still being found after his death. On May 3rd, Cheryl Bonaventura's body was recovered in Utah. She had died from a point-blank gunshot wound. On May 11th, Michelle Korfman's body was found in the Angeles National Forest. Due to the state of decomposition when it was found, it would take another month to positively identify her. Christopher Wilder was dubbed the Beauty Queen Killer by the media. When he died, he left an estate worth almost $2 million. A ruling was made that after taxes had been paid, the balance of his estate was to be divided amongst his victims or their families. The bodies of his first two victims, Rosario Gonzalez and Elizabeth Kenyon, have never been found. Their families asked that Wilder's properties be searched, including one home he had owned and remodeled several times. Authorities declined to do so, citing the expense and their belief that nothing was likely to be found. Christopher Wilder was also later suspected in several other cases of missing and murdered women and girls. He is still considered a prime suspect in the unsolved Wanda Beach murders in Sydney, Australia. Marianne Schmidt and Christine Chirac vanished from a beach near Sydney in 1965. Witnesses described the girls as being accompanied by a man matching Wilder's description, who was walking with them towards the dunes. Both girls were strangled, raped, and stabbed. Their bodies were discovered in a shallow grave, but their killer was never identified. In 1981, Mary Hare and Mary Opitz were abducted on two different days from a mall in Lee County, Florida. Mary Hare was later found stabbed to death. Mary Opitz remains missing. In 1982, skeletal remains of two females were found on two separate occasions near property owned by Wilder in Loxahatchee, Florida. One of the deceased had been dead for several years, and the other for just a few months when the remains were discovered. In June of 1983, two girls aged 10 and 12 reported being abducted from a park in Boynton Beach. The man had forced them to perform oral sex. They identified Christopher Wilder as their attacker from a photo lineup. Wilder was also suspected of other kidnappings and disappearances. On July 6, 1983, Tammy Leppert, a teen model and actress who had appeared on the front of CoverGirl magazine and had a small part in the movie Scarface, disappeared from Cocoa Beach, Florida. She is still missing. Wilder is considered a prime suspect in her disappearance as well. On March 7, 1984, Melody Gay, age 19, was abducted while working the graveyard shift of a convenience store in Collier County, Florida. Her body was pulled out of a canal three days later. And on March 15, 1984, 
15-year-old Colleen Orsborne from Daytona Beach, Florida, went missing from her bedroom overnight and was never seen again. Wilder had been seen in Daytona that day, propositioning models. The Charlie Project lists Wilder as the main suspect in Colleen's disappearance. In addition, Wilder is also suspected of several other girls' and women's disappearances from several locations in Florida where he had lived or was known to frequent. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. This weekend is CrimeCon UK. Will I see you there? Come out to Podcast Row, say hi, take a picture, grab some swag. It's going to be a blast. If you don't have your tickets yet, you can still use my offer code onceupon 22 for a discount. See you in London. Once Upon a Crime is written and produced by me, Esther Ludlow. My research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. And additional support and final audio edit for this episode was provided by Studio 71. Until next time, be good to one another.